Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. This is Monitor Monday for February 14, 2022. Here's today's rundown. A growing number of drug manufacturers are imposing unlawful limits on 340B discounts, according to 340B Health. As many as 13 companies will not discount prices for prescription drugs sold to safety net hospitals and dispensed through community pharmacies. From Washington, we have an exclusive report by Maureen Testoni from 340B Health. There is an alarming staffing crisis among case management professionals in America's hospitals. Mary Beth Bates has that story. We'll also hear from legislative analyst Matthew Albright, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, healthcare attorney David Glazer, and senior healthcare consultant Tiffany Ferguson. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. We have a lot of news to report, and because of that, we're going to start right away with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning to all my Valentines out there. Last Thursday marked the last day for comments to be submitted to CMS on the proposed national coverage determination for Adjuhelm, the $29,000 Alzheimer's drug. You may recall CMS proposed to cover the drug, but only in clinical trials. And while their first request for comments in August received 132 comments, this time they have received over 9,000 comments. Now, most of these comments oppose the NCD as written and want CMS to either approve the drug without any restriction or to not cover the drug at all. I think CMS chose the clinical trial route, hoping it was a nice compromise, but it appears that it made very few happy. We'll see what happens in a month or two. Next, one big headline last week was that 38 hospitals that have five stars from CMS are going to be penalized under the CMS Hospital Acquired Reduction Program, excuse me, Hospital Acquired Condition Reduction Program, the HAC program. The 38 hospitals include one Mayo Clinic Hospital, one Cleveland Clinic Hospital, Northwestern in Chicago, and Cedar sinai Medical Center, the hospital to the stars in Los Angeles. Now, how can this be? Well, the first reason may be what all of us have heard at some point. Our patients are sicker than everybody else's patients. And that may be true, although risk adjustment methods are supposed to account for that. The other reason that these hospitals are just more diligent at reporting than others. But I have a better explanation. We still have no idea how to actually measure quality in healthcare. Sure, the Yale mathematicians can come up with an incomprehensible formula to calculate the rewards and penalties, like you will see on your screen here, if you can understand those. Um, but are we, what are we really measuring? You know, measuring patient satisfaction contributed to the opioid epidemic. Many years ago, the guidelines said every diabetic should have an A1C under 7, and everyone measured that as a quality indicator. Well, it turned out that a target A1C below 7 was more dangerous to some diabetics. Again, how many were harmed trying to achieve high-quality care? I know we have to get from volume to value, but at what price? Moving on, last week saw the release of a study that looked at patients with sepsis who were discharged from the ED. They actually used organ dysfunction to define sepsis and not SERS criteria, so it was pretty valid. They found two-thirds of the patients sent home had a urinary tract infection, and the average age was 54. 
The good news is that there was no increase in mortality in those patients who were sent home. So it seems safe for very select sepsis patients to actually be discharged from the ED. Now, how long before the payers deny all admissions for sepsis? That's the big question. Finally, this morning I received a text from Dr. Erica Riemer requesting that I be her palantine. Sadly, I had to deny the request as the documentation submitted did not support that level of friendship. I informed her that she can either appeal the denial or she may resubmit the request for acquaintance time. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Hirsch, very much. That was the Vice President of R1 RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. <laughs> Dr. Hirsch is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday during Valentine's Day. There's an alarming staffing crisis among case management professionals. And to report that story, here is Mary Beth Pace. Good morning, Chuck, and thank you for having me on Monitor Monday. I'm hoping that everybody already read my article that when it was in that rack monitor last Thursday. Um, I do work for Trinity Health. However, this experience is actually not focused on Trinity. It's beyond the four walls of the hospitals even. Case managers and clinical social workers and utilization management staff crisis is real. Case managers, including utilization management have, and clinical social workers, have been hit hard. I don't want to overshadow the fact that nursing and bedside nursing and bedside physicians and clinicians have been also hit hard, but this team, I feel, has been some of our unsung heroes, and we just have been smacked. So the length of stay, um, first, the surgical volume stopped, so the length of stay that was at least predictable with our inpatient surgeries could no longer be relied upon. It took a few months before we could even code the COVID patients correctly, so that stung as well. There were concerns with foot traffic in the patient rooms, and so the CM and social worker who rely on building relationships, albeit short-term relationships, with patients and families turned to creative ways to talk to them. And then as the pandemic surged, there was concern about the hospital finances and ability to continue. So nurses were being asked to be deployed back to the floor and other team members were being asked to furlough. I think CMS really does believe they helped us. And yes, some of the help was actually helpful, but there were so many pieces that just did not connect for us. Postponing the UM meetings was a great idea, but what about condition code 44 process? Not really spelled out, so left to our own devices. In the article, I spoke about the insurances also trying to help, but they did not go far enough. I get it. Everything is a business, but wow, to tell you the ways to weigh, to tell us to waive prior authorization during that first wave of, for inpatient hospital le level of care, only to start audits post first wave to see did we get it right? That is not building a lasting trusting relationship. And thank them for waiving prior authorization for transitions to skilled care, similar to the three-day waiver that CMS still has in effect during the public health emergency. But again, the offer fell short because first, there is no staffing to manage the skilled care beds. And second, the skilled care agencies do not trust that the insurance companies will reimburse them in many instances. The long road has taught us some things for sure, how to be more creative with delivering the notices that CMS never offered to stop, how to have tough conversations with families on phone and FaceTime instead of in person where the human touch meant so much. I look at some of the creative ways that nursing is combating this, and I think we can learn from that. I wonder if it isn't time to go to team case managing. 
similar concept to team nursing, have the case managers and clinical social workers working at the top of their license, but provide them with resource support to complete all of the paperwork and tasks that need to happen. If you've already done this, I congratulate you and I wanna to talk to you. I think that this and some creative ways to interview patients and families can continue remotely. We may just get through this. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you, Mary Beth. That was Mary Beth Pace. Mary Beth is Vice President of Care Management for Trinity Health, and thank you very much, Mary Beth. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Matthew Albright, Tiffany Ferguson, David Glazer, and our special guest, Maureen Testoni with 340B Health. It's Valentine's Day. It's Monday. It's February the 14th, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. If your organization has been audited by a Medicare Advantage organization, you're now faced with a serious question. Should you challenge the audit? If so, do you even have the right defense? Under pressure from CMS, Medicare Advantage organizations have become more aggressive in their provider audits. They're looking for program noncompliance, potentially even fraud and abuse. But the fact is, many audit findings are simply wrong. So you must be prepared to fight back. RAC Monitor presents a crucially important webcast on Medicare Advantage audits featuring healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. This webcast is Tuesday, February 22nd. Register now to attend Medicare Advantage Audits Mounting an Effective Defense. Again, the webcast is Medicare Advantage Audits Mounting an Effective Defense. Register now to learn how to win and hold on to payments that are rightfully yours. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. Good morning. David, what could be risky this morning? Well, Chuck, it's the risk that the streak of contractors getting things wrong continues. Now, the good news is that while I think this contractor is wrong, at least I understand where they're coming from. They've got an argument to make. So my client had nurse practitioners supervising cardiac stress tests. The contractor, WPS, is denying the claims. My client astutely noted that Medicare recently changed the supervision rules to permanently allow non-physician practitioners to supervise diagnostic tests. The contractor said, in essence, you're right, but the non-physician practitioner has to be operating within the scope of their license. So far, I agree with them. The contractor then said that the code in question called for supervision, interpretation, and report of the cardiac stress test. The contractor's medical directors concluded that nurse practitioners aren't capable of interpreting the cardiac stress test. There are two ways, at least, in which I think the contractor's conclusion is incorrect. Um, first, I read the statute differently than they do. They focus, well, actually, I guess first, first, I would say, I don't know that you need to be able to interpret because you could do a technical only modifier. But after that, they focused on a provision that said nurse practitioners can order preventive and diagnostic tests and emphasize that says nothing about supervision. Well, it's not a terrible argument, but it disregards some important points. First, it would suggest that nurse practitioners aren't capable of reading a plain film x-ray. And I think everyone agrees that's in the scope of their practice. The statute allows them to formulate a differential diagnosis and develop a treatment plan. And my strong hunch is that the board feels that interpreting diagnostic tests will, feel within, will fall within those general criteria. Moreover, the statute, and this one happens to be in Iowa, specifically allows supervision of fluoroscopy. 
Now, that could go either way. The fact that the statute specifically discusses fluoroscopy could be viewed as suggesting that other supervision of diagnostic tests is improper. But I think that the intent there was to say, hey, they can do fluoroscopy and other stuff. Now, the truth is I wouldn't be doing this segment um, if this were the only thing that was going on because the contractor has a basis for its argument, even if I disagree with it. But this next part is where I think they truly go off the rails. The contractor said the nurse practitioner doesn't have the advanced education in nuclear and echo level training as required by the American College of Cardiology to interpret nuclear and stress echo tests. So here's the problem. The American College of Cardiology doesn't get to determine the scope of practice for nurse practitioners. There's a state board that does that. If the contractor wants to determine what is or is not within the scope of practice for a particular professional, they should do what the professional would do or I would do if I can't figure it out from the statute, which is contact the board. Now, the American College of Cardiology is the wrong entity for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is that they're arguably competitors of the nurse practitioners. If you want to know whether the Cincinnati Bengals were out of bounds on a particular play last night, you probably don't want to rely exclusively on the opinion of the Rams. And if you're trying to figure out if a Russian athlete is improperly drugging, you probably don't ask the Russian Olympic Committee to make the determination. And trade groups don't get to set Medicare's coverage criteria. So when it comes to trade groups determining the scope of practice or really anything else, I'm going to channel Sarah Barella. You've got opinions, man. We're all entitled to them. But I never asked. So let me thank you for your time. Who died and made you king of anything? And Chuck, if I'm going to use Sarah Bareilles, and it's Valentine's Day, I got to go with two songs. So I'm going to close Chuck by writing you a love song. And yeah, it turns out I am a Sarah Bareilles fan. Back to you, Chuck. <laughs> Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Fredrickson & Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Here now with the very latest news on the social determinants of health is senior healthcare consultant Tiffany Ferguson. Tiffany also has the Monitor Monday listener survey. Good morning, Tiffany. Good morning and happy Valentine's Day, everyone, and post-Super Bowl Day. I would like to focus on some of the latest updates regarding social determinants of health and how our listeners can get involved and seek out more information beyond data collection to produce valuable outcomes. SDOH is making its way into the technology world by finding ways to integrate with EMRs and create a closed-loop referral process for providers to connect patients with community resources. Today, we celebrate Find Help or findhelp.org for being ranked number one for 2022 as best-in-class for social determinants of health networks. I originally stumbled upon Find Help formerly known as Aunt Bertha, when connecting with colleagues at a conference about eight years ago. I then researched the company, and it was not long before I was signing a contract to have them involved with my prior health system and connecting with the local nonprofits. 
Originally started as Aunt Bertha in 2010, CEO Erwin Gray came up with the idea to help find services while he was acting as the primary caretaker for his mother. Aunt Bertha was named after this idea that the wise aunt many of us have who gives great advice and a helping hand. The creation was to have Aunt Bertha pick up where Uncle Sam leaves off with a mission to connect people in need to the programs that serve them with dignity and ease. Today, Find Help is the largest, most widely used search engine to find free and reduced cost programs in, by every zip code in the United States. They provide easy search options for customers looking for services around food, housing, goods, transportation, health care, money, supportive care, education, work, and even legal needs. For my fellow social workers, case managers, and community workers, they have an option for connecting directly with your local nonprofit. Through a login and password, you can save and share your favorites list for your patients and community members. You can refer to programs through a closed-loop process and keep notes about the programs that people are finding most helpful. FindHelp has started to integrate with many AMRs, data analytics, and population health companies, such as Epic, Cerner, and Innovator. This data is being used to help support research and provide intel regarding the services that communities are using and lacking. As of 2022, Find Help is contracted with 275 healthcare and payer organizations, and they also teamed up with United Way for the 211 service to ensure both companies are working in the same direction for bridging communities with access to services. So my question for today's listeners is, has your hospital or health system used or is using Aunt Bertha, now named Find Help? And the website is easy, findhelp.org. This is, the responses are, this is new to me. No, but I'm going to check it out. Yes, we are using this program or does not apply. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tiffany, very much. I'm with Senior Healthcare Consultant Tiffany Ferguson, Chief Executive Officer for Phoenix Medical Management. And as Tiffany said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in this broadcast. Up next, Matthew Albright with the Monitor Monday legislative update. The Legislative Update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Matthew Albright. Chuck, oral arguments were heard a little over a week ago on the Texas Medical Association lawsuit regarding the No Surprises Act. The No Surprises Act, listeners know, is the law effective this year that protects patients against billing by out-of-network providers in cases where the patient did not voluntarily choose to go out-of-network. Listeners may remember that the Texas Medical Association's lawsuit is one of four suits brought against the Biden administration because of its regulation on how providers should be reimbursed for these out-of-network claims now that the No Surprises Act has removed patients from that reimbursement calculation. The No Surprises Act regulation, in essence, says that arbitration decisions on provider reimbursement should primarily be based on how close the payment is to the health plan's in-network rate. This policy, according to the lawsuits, basically sets the in-network rate as the de facto reimbursement for many out-of-network services. The lawsuits against this policy say that the No Surprises Act itself has a list of five other factors beyond the in-network rate, 
that should be considered as part of the reimbursement, including acuity of the patient, training and experience of the provider, and the facility's market share in a particular region. Because the law took effect a month and a half ago, these out-of-network claims are already coming in now and being paid by health plans. So providers would like to see this in-network rate policy stopped now. The Texas case was the first to get started. The association asked for the court to give a summary judgment, that is to rule on the case based only on the oral arguments presented about a week ago. The American Medical Association and the American Hospital Association have also asked for summary judgment or a temporary hold on the reimbursement policy, and they asked for an answer from the court by March. This is all to say that we should get a good sense from the courts before March on which way they will go on these cases. The courts may go so far as stopping the administration's current policy from going forward. In a related pricing story, last week we re we reported that the state of Massachusetts was requiring Mass General Brigham, the premier academic nonprofit hospital in the state, to submit a plan on how it will lower costs to patients after reports showed that Mass General had the highest prices in the state. Similarly, legislators in Indiana have written a letter to all of their state hospitals requiring those hospitals to come up with a plan to lower costs within three months. Indiana's hospital prices are 20% above the national average. So we have states pushing on specific hospital pricing. Sounds like a trend. Finally, along with the No Surprises Act, both health plans and providers are struggling to implement the transparency regulations, whereby health plans and hospitals must publish the cost of basic medical procedures and services, including the rates that are negotiated between hospitals and specific health plans. A recent study found that less than 15% of hospitals are compliant with those transparency regulations. The regulations were passed under the, Trump, under the Trump administration and became effective the beginning of 2021. Chuck, with the transparency and the no surprises rules, there's going to be a lot more attention on hospital pricing and health plan reimbursement with both states and federal government bodies increasingly tracking and reacting to it. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Matthew, very much. That was former City Mass official Matthew Albright, Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous. Now is the time for the results of today's Monitor Monday listener survey. Once again, here's Tiffany Ferguson. Thanks, Chuck. So the question was for our listeners, has your hospital or health system used or is using Aunt Bertha now named Find Help? And the responses are pretty interesting. 60% said, this is new to me, so I'm glad we're getting the word out. We had about 15% say no, but I'm going to check it out. 6% yes, we're using the program. And of course, then there's our other listeners, 20% does not apply. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tiffany, very much for your survey. And coming up next, an exclusive report on how some major drug manufacturers are imposing unlawful limits on 340B discounts to safety net hospitals. That story is next. Maureen Tony joins us in Washington after this important message. This is Monitor Monday. Stand by. Here's important information about the healthcare publication focused on third-party auditors. It's the Auditor Monitor. In the current edition of Auditor Monitor, you'll learn why the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services received a funding increase of more than $50 million to implement greater levels of medical review in 2022. You'll also learn where audits will be focused this year and why the social determinants of health could be the next big target. 
that and more in the latest edition of Auditor Monitor. Not a subscriber? Here's your chance to have your own edition. Go to the Rack University Bookstore, order a subscription today, and start receiving your own edition of the Auditor Monitor. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, a number of major drug manufacturers are imposing unlawful restrictions on the prices of prescription drugs being sold to safety net hospitals. Reporting that story from Washington, D.C. is the president of the chief executive officer for 340B Health, Maureen Testoni. Good morning, Maureen. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Chuck, and happy Valentine's Day. It's a pleasure to be on your show today. The dispute over drug companies' actions to restrict 340B discounts for drugs purchased by SafeNet providers and dispensed by community pharmacies has been going on for nearly 20 months and sadly shows no sign of being resolved soon. Since July 2020, a growing group of drug companies has been taking unilateral actions to deny mandated discounts to hospitals, health centers, and clinics that are eligible for 340B. Having failed to convince Congress to change the 340B statute, these companies took matters into their own hands and began ignoring the law. Since that time, the number of drug companies imposing or announcing 340B restrictions has grown to 13, with five companies announcing their policies in just the last three months. These include some of the biggest drug makers in the world, such as Eli Lilly, Novo Nordisk, AstraZeneca, Sanofi, Novartis, Beringer Engelheim, and Merck. Five of the biggest companies jumped in recently, Amgen, AbbVie, Bristol-Myers Squibbs, and Pfizer. In May of 2021, the Health Resources and Services Administration sent letters to six of those companies informing them that they are breaking the law and ordering them to restore 340B discounts immediately. Instead of complying, the companies went to court in several states trying to block HRSA from enforcing the law. There have been opinions rendered in three of those courts. Two of them upheld Hearst's view that drug companies have no right to impose these restrictions on 340B pricing. But a third court said Hearst's view isn't the only possible interpretation of the law. All those cases have now been appealed. The actions of these drug companies are weakening the healthcare safety net and threatening the health of patients especially those who have low incomes or live in rural communities where the safety net hospital is likely the only place people can go for care in a wide geographic area. Our organization, 340B Health, conducted a survey of hospitals to better understand the impact of these restrictions on their finances and their ability to deliver care. What we found really troubles me. Among the large, mostly urban hospitals, the average loss due to community pharmacy restrictions was 23%. In other words, those policies are costing urban hospitals nearly a quarter of the savings they receive through partnerships with community pharmacies. That translates into a median loss of a million dollars per hospital. Some of the larger hospitals have even bigger losses, with one in 10 of those hospitals reporting a loss of $9 million or more. The results are even more troubling when it comes to small rural hospitals that serve broad geographic areas. These critical acts of hospitals are experiencing an average loss of 39% or $220,000 for the median hospital. One in 10 of these hospitals have lost $700,000 or more. These losses are even more concerning because we know that savings from partnerships with community pharmacies make up half of all 340B savings for these critical access hospitals. These small hospitals already operate on razor-thin margins and often are in the red to begin with. 
These kinds of losses could lead to more rural hospitals closing, leaving their communities without any source of hospital care. Chuck, it's important to remember that more than 700 drug companies participate in 340B and only 13 are imposing these illegal restrictions. But we should all be worried about the fact that the longer this fight drags out, the more damage the healthcare safety net and patients in need will suffer. That's why we're calling on the government to accelerate its enforcement actions and restore the health of 340B. Thank you for making a copy of the report available on your website. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Maureen. And that's going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, Tiffany Ferguson, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Mary Beth Pace, and Maureen Testoni, President and CEO for 340B Health, reporting our lead story. One more thing before we go, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday broadcast on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, give us a review. Be with us next Monday when healthcare attorney Andrew Walkland returns with a broadcast report on the Department of Health and Human Services nationwide audit of hospitals and other providers who receive provider relief funds to determine if they have complied with the requirements. What's at stake is $178 billion. That's next Monday here on Monitor Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern. I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Everybody have a nice Valentine's Day and a great week. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.